Friday, February 17th, 2017, from Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca, live from LaGuardia Terminal B, because we're going to... Florida. We're going to... Florida. Florida. All right, great. Where are we going? Florida. Could you say it on mic? Florida. We're going to Florida. So I have some Floridian content here up top at the top of the show, but I do have to note that that icy blue-eyed, bald-pated, scar-faced gentleman who Donald Trump had apparently tapped to head the, the National Security Council after Mike Flynn was jettisoned, Robert Harward, he said no. And the reason he said no, reportedly, is he wanted his own staff rather than the person or people that they had there. And they have almost no staff at the NSC, but who they have is Katie McFarlane. And she, Donald Trump knows her because she used to be on Fox all the time. Remember during the campaign when Donald Trump said, oh, the generals, I know them from the shows. Well, what this shows is that when the generals and the shows go head to head, he's going with the shows over the general. Harwood wasn't a general. He was an admiral, a vice admiral, three stars. That's what Flynn was also, the wet version of the army. But he will not be joining the NSA. That is that nice, smoothly functioning machine that Donald Trump talked about in yesterday's press conference. But what does this have to do with Florida? I ask you nothing. Here's the Floridian content. I read that a team of researchers led by the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration bioacoustics expert Shannon Rankin has developed a computer program that can tell dolphins by their calls. So it does this with 84% efficiency. This algorithm recognizes the calls of specific dolphins and can tell you which dolphin is which. Now, the weird thing is, I was all excited about this, but when I heard that it was done with 84% efficiency, I said to myself, but I, I'm better than that. I mean, I don't know if you know this about me. I grew up with the dolphins. I learned how to speak both to porpoises and dolphins. I'm not actually part dolphin. That is a bald spot, not a blowhole, but I'm really good at identifying dolphins. And as an illustration of this point, I've asked uh, Chris to put together some dolphin sound. And what I'm going to do is um, I'm going to identify it. All right, Chris, can you play the first dolphin call? All right. I know that one. Know that one really easily. That was Connor. Am I right? Chris, can you play the second dolphin call? All right. That's pretty easy too. you know. It's Pedro. It's definitely Pedro. All right, let's go. Let's keep going. Play the third dolphin call. They called me up and said, how do you feel about speaking in front of the hair industry? I went, hell yeah, why not? You know. <laughs> then the guy that called me said, do you still have any hair? <laughs> I said, unfortunately, I've got more than ever. It's just all over my body now. <laughs> oh. I was, could you play a little bit of that again? And we'll talk about the 72 dolphins and how we came from nowhere and ended up somewhere. Okay, I know. That's Larry Zonka. Am I right? Yeah, told you. I know how to do the dolphins. All right. Could you play another one? Oh, that is definitely John Allen Third. John Allen Third? Yep. Is he, is he right, Chris? I knew it. Michelle, you want to do one? Okay. Michelle does not want to do one. So today on the show. No, I'll do it. I'll do it. On the show today, it is an Antan twig. It's been that 
amount of time. I admit mistakes, although I'm pretty good on my dolphin stuff. But first, he is the co-host and now the permanent host, the host in residence of one of my favorite podcasts that's about the news and our crumbling world around us. It's Andy Zaltzman of The Bugle. There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. The Bugle is back. The Bugle is the trailblazing, important political comedy podcast that was started by Andy Zaltzman and John Oliver. The Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world. After all this, I've had enough of Putin. Really. He, he must go. No. Still, no. still giving arms to Assad. Millions of dollars worth. And the rest of it. No. So I, I went around to talk to my friend Peter, who has a parrot. Um, but Pete wasn't in, so I spoke to his parrot instead. So I was saying to Peter's bird, got to stop. <clears throat> Every bell is a dagger to my heart. <laughs> it's got to stop. John Oliver went on to become a Daily Show correspondent, still did the bugle, but now that he's doing uh, some HBO show, from what I hear about, what Andy's done is replaced him, or shall I say augmented Mr. Oliver's contributions with a rotating cast of international comics, critics, insightful people, people who could keep up with Andy on the bugle. Hello, Andy. How are you? Hello, I'm very well, thanks. Yes. Who? So, so Hari Kondabalu's on the show, who's uh, been on the gist a few times, and uh, Wyatt Cenac, who's been on before and will be on again. So, how did you cast your rotating cast? Well, I basically thought of people I'd like to record shows with, and then asked them if they wanted to do it, and um, they <laughs> mostly said yes. So it's quite a simple process, really. Uh, yeah, it seems to have gone pretty well. Obviously, it's different without. John, I, I mean, a, a slight correction. He, we, we actually started the bugle after he'd already gone to the Daily Show, but uh, I hadn't heard that he was doing an HBO show. I'd heard that he quit uh, to get a proper job. But um, you know, there you go. It's behind some sort of paywall and oh, it's pay right. cable, so I don't, I don't think people really know about it or remark on it much. But yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of sad, really, what's become of him. I'd heard he'd uh, got a job as an account secretary at a Manhattan delivery <laughs> firm, but obviously yeah. I've been misinformed. Sadly enough, I think that's just about the impact uh, that he's could have on this new administration. There were times his stuff was moving the needle, but you have to have power in place that gives a damn about making the lives of its citizens better. So now it'll probably just be spitting up against the wall. Yes. I mean, that's the job of satire is to, to throw the javelins of truth into the, the swamp of corruption. And uh, yeah. But javelins in swamps don't always work, to be honest. No. And it's even hard to gauge the distance just in terms of an athletics feat, you know? All that arguing about, did the swamp suck this javelin further than that one? I mean, I don't know. It's clearly hard to drain a swamp. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, The current current tactic seems to be to to fill it up and hope that it just overflows over the side. I don't know. Swamps are tricky. That's that's what we've (laughs) learned from this conversation. 
I was listening to a show a few weeks ago. I forgot who your guest was. And you had mentioned sport in some way. Yep. And of all the references, or maybe you mentioned golf specifically, but of all the references, a Bernard Langer reference was thrown out, <laughs> which was amazing just for the randomness of it. And that a few weeks later, Bernard Langer shows up in political news as the reason that Donald Trump thinks many illegal people are voting in the election. <laughs> this was extraordinary. It was, yeah, Hari Kondabolu mentioned Bernard Langer, as I think, and it was just a, a small riff, and yeah. he was clearly the name that yeah. came into Hari's head. And it, was, it wasn't weeks later, it was days later <laughs> that it turned out that Bernard Langer had basically become the de facto president of the universe and was uh, pretty much running the entire Trump administration from behind the scenes. Yeah, That's the kind of power we wield at the bugle. We say something and it becomes a fact. Well, I was just thinking, given the scattershot nature of the Trump presidency, this has happened with proper names that you wouldn't think would uh, lodge themselves in the news, like the phrase Nordstrom's or Mar-a-Lago wedding or Frederick Douglass, just randomly, I think most <laughs> words have a chance of becoming a mini scandal these days. Yeah, I mean, it must be very exciting being a word at the moment because <laughs> you just never know how you're going to be used and what the implications of that use are going to be. So, um, yeah, exciting times for uh, for language in general. Yeah. I mean, I, it is under under attack language as never before, I think, uh, from the highest highest level of American politics. So um, whether language can survive, I, I can see when the, the, the Trump era ends in, uh, I don't know, 30 or 40 years once the Constitution has been tweaked, yeah. then... I think we might just have reverted to grunting like cavemen as a species, and I think that might make us happier, actually. Words, yeah. words do seem to rile people, particularly words written or spoken on the internet. They, they seem to be the, the angriest words of all. Yeah, I mean, you know, given all the horrors of humanity and all the wars that didn't need to take place and just all the scientific uh, ignorance that led to plagues and other horrible calamities is Gamergate is on that continuum is what I'm saying. <laughs> yes. When you think of all those terrible things that happened, most of them were caused or aggravated by people saying things. So, uh, yes. you know, maybe, you know, the, the grunt world is going to be, it's going to be a happier world for everyone. It is true. There was a theory. There were a few theories about, you know, kind of countries that don't go to war. One being the uh, McDonald's or the golden arches theory until, yep. Places with gold, you know, Russia invades Georgia and they both had golden arches. And there are a bunch of places with McDonald's that have gone to war. But another theory is if you look at all the English speaking countries, they're all at peace with each other. You know, right. and most of the United States friends, uh, somehow we're still friends with uh, the UK and uh, Canada. So I guess Australia <laughs> is going to be the one thing that tests this entire English speaking nations get along theory. I mean, the, the closest we, that we in Britain ever came to war with Australia was uh, an argument about cricket in the 1930s, which apparently um, uh, called the Bodyline Crisis, which probably wasn't big news in the States. But, but by all accounts, things got quite quite testy between <laughs> our governments. And an argument about, about cricket, and I think that would have been, in many ways, the greatest war ever fought had it happened, yeah. to, to have a... A war about cricketing morality is, in many ways, that would be the high point of human civilization for me. Regrettably, both sides pulled back from it, and uh, there's just been kind of lingering resentment on the sports field ever since. 
Now, I want to go back when we were talking about satire and javelins in the swamp. Not that this is your purpose, but do you think your show has ever had an impact, uh, a real world impact that the object of your satire either was shamed or reformed <laughs> or a good a good consequence occurred because of the ribbing the bugle gave? Uh, I would say no, uh, <laughs> out of guess. Um, it's great fun to do and people who listen to it seem to seem to like it but i guess the kind of people that satire generally addresses would not necessarily lif- uh, listen to a, a a lefty podcast right so um i don't i mean i don't know I, I mean clearly when you have a breadth of audience uh such as the daily show does and such as you know john has with last week tonight's samantha b show and things you really have that breadth of audience and it can impact certainly on you know getting issues into the public mind that weren't necessarily there before and into the political discourse. But uh, in terms of, uh, you know, a satirical podcast with, um, I don't don't know, about sort of 200,000 listeners around, regular listeners around the world, it's unlikely to spark a a massive political revolution. But um, (laughs) I don't know, it's not really, really the purpose of it. No, but but catharsis has its place. Catharsis has, I mean, that's that. That is a huge. Uh, I mean, that's a, one of the main roles of of satirical comedy. In a one, one of the common criticisms of it is you're preaching to the converted. But then, you know, so is uh, most religion. So um, there's a place for preaching to the converted, and <laughs> as you say, yeah, they're kind of the, a, a catharsis of, I guess, seeing your views expressed in an entertaining or a novel way is. Uh, one of the things that people like in satirical comedy, both you know, television and stand-up, and as well as podcast and radio. If religion's not preaching to the converted, I'd say it's doing it wrong. Well, the the preacher was good, but all these all these references to Hindu gods—it's very <laughs> weird for a Methodist. Yeah, I want to guess through history, it's preached to the unconverted as well, sometimes mm-hmm. in quite a threatening manner. But um, um, there's a time and a place for preaching to both the converted and the unconverted. And um, to be realistic, podcasting is uh, has a largely converted audience. Yeah, it's opt-in. And and I want to compliment, the Bugle is funny and great and I think more diverse than ever, just the diversity of the guests and the opinions. But lately I've been hearing this con- a conversation and argument about what form should anti-Trump satire take. I don't want to put the Bugle in this, you know, uh, I don't want to say what should the Bugle do differently, but I just want to tap your knowledge as a satirist, your insights. So one way of looking at it is to say the kind of satire that pokes fun at Trump's idiosyncrasies or belittles his physical appearance, that never moves the needle. The only, you know, you know, we found this with Berlusconi, we found this with Putin. It might upset him, but it never really does anything. The effective kind of satire is one that emphasizes the point that he's not delivering a better life for his people. I might agree with that, though that might seem hard to do. Do you think that there is a value in just the kind of satire, if it's a good enough joke, that, you know, belittles or ridiculous person it can work in a number of ways and it's you know a fairly broad form it it depends what you're lampooning and why i mean essentially i think the best satire is really journalism with jokes which i mean that's essentially what what john show is is you know it's extremely journalistic as comedy shows go but i mean in terms of the most effective satire i mean it's hard to know what's going to be effective whether if you just rile trump uh, we've seen how he reacts badly to provocation. It's possible that that might spark some form of political meltdown. I don't know. It's it, it's unlikely, and, and also it tends to entrench already held political opinions. I think that the most effective stuff will be analysing 
what he does in a fairly forensic manner and then presenting it with jokes in a entertaining and accessible way and with the the nature of you know good comedy gets shared widely now that it you know it can change the nature of the debate whether it can have a massive impact on people who've essentially already made their minds up one way or the other i don't know but certainly in america the political comedy shows have become a significant part of the uh, political discourse and you know we even see you know newspaper articles over here um basically just saying what the political comedy shows have done the previous <laughs> the previous night which is a kind of bizarre new strand of journalism i guess it shows that you know people are taking notice of it but i would imagine largely people who aren't going to have their minds changed because they would already agree with it the extent i, mean, I think it would be dangerous to rely on it to bring trump or putin down yes in lieu of uh, a House committee being uh, convened to investigate, we just, you know, put a SNL on twice a week. That's not yeah. the way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you say something about John Cho that I think is true, that it's journalism with jokes. But I was thinking about it. Um, you know what else it is? People call it a political comedy. It's really policy comedy. And that's really hard. Yes. And I guess that's one of the things that sets it apart and um i guess john always aimed high comedically certainly when the stuff we did together in britain before he got the daily show gig i guess we were sort of working towards doing political comedy that tried to address not the sort of superficialities and personalities but tried to get into sort of detail of stuff and structure it in a properly argued way yeah i mean i think he's through the years on the daily show probably built up both the, the techniques and the authority to do that now that he has a show with all the infrastructure and the support behind it, yeah, it's become extremely effective television, certainly. All right, new episodes of The Bugle hit every, how often? Every week, yes. So they usually come out late on Friday or early on, on Saturday. And uh, I'm recording, doing the first ever live Bugles in Australia in uh, April at the Melbourne Comedy Festival. So um, wow. this is something, something I always wanted to do. And John and I had talked about it, and then the, the, we could never find a time when his rather hectic diary and my slightly less hectic diary uh, matched up. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I hope I hope they're good shows. So, um, yeah, that's I, not, I'm I, not really selling it hard here, am I? But, um, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know if I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Australian politician Corey Bernardi, who recently broke from the Liberal Party, the ill-named Liberal Party there. But he seems like a barrel of laughs. Well, Australia does does churn out. Some spectacular politicians. So their previous Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, was uh, the gift that kept giving from a comedic point of view. Um, and you might not have wanted the gifts that he gave. But um, when I was in Australia a couple of years ago now, when he was still Prime Minister, and there was this story about him eating a whole unpeeled raw onion live on national television twice in a week. And... I mean, there's so many points that sentence should have stopped and didn't, but it was the fact that he did it more than once that was, I mean, and it wasn't, you know, the worst thing a leader's ever done, but it was one of the oddest things any leader has uh, has ever done. So, uh, yeah, Corey Bernardi's got some got some high levels to match up to in terms of, um, you know, the, the quality of l lunacy provided by Australian politicians.
was this is this his party trick? Did he know what he was doing? Did a hypnotist not remove a suggestion that an apple is an onion? What was going on? I've no idea. I think uh, he was trying to show his support for the American farming industry, but that was a really weird. Uh, sorry, Australian farming industry. It was well, it's got an odd way to do it, really. Yeah, uh, I don't think I don't think historians will ever properly explain why Tony Abbott ate unpeeled raw onions on telly twice in a week. No, but, it's very hard, um, very hard yeah. to peel back the onion on that. Yeah, it? I mean, there's there's yeah. you know mysteries from ancient Egypt we still don't understand. <laughs> I think that will be one of the eternal mysteries from the early 21st century when people in thousands of years studying the remnants of what passes for civilization. Andy Zaltzman, host of The Bugle. Go to Australia for his live shows or just listen to it every week wherever you get podcasts. Thanks so much, Andy. Thanks very much for having me on. Cheers. And now the spiel. In fact, it is an Antan twig. The Antan twig is a period accounting for three weeks. It comes from the old English word for one and twenty, an Antan twig. We use the Antan twig as a feature on the gist to check in every three weeks, see what's going on on Facebook and the Twitter feed, at Pescami, P-S-E-A-M-I, at Slate Gist, in the old inbox. Now I have to say, the previous statements we rate as two Pinocchios. Fake, fake news! We made up the word antantwig. There's no real English, old English word for 21. But if there were the equivalent of Fortnite, it would be antantwig. We reversed engineered that. And also, we don't do this thing every three weeks like we say we do, because I don't know if you've noticed there's this new guy in office for the last four weeks, and we just didn't feel we had the breathing room to do one of these during that time, but now we do? I don't know. Who knows? From the time I began this antantwig to the time it ends, I'm sure the U.S. will endorse a three or four state solution, a five or six China policy. There'll be sanctions on Russia, both meanings of the word, probably at the same time. So let's check in on who has been getting back to us. Darlene Fick has on Facebook, she was talking about an item in the news. Now, a lot of times as a New Yorker, I'll say, you know, crazy thing going on with that de Blasio or uh, the Oroville Dam. I'll be attracted to uh, the goings on in Northern California. But Fick writes me as a lifelong citizen of South Dakota, I enjoyed your spiel on the South Dakota legislature and the ethics bill. I am 22. And she explains why I I am just so heartened that I could reach a South Dakotan. I was there for a week long reporting period. I uh, played some poker in Deadwood, but I feel I feel like I have a bond with the Dakotans. And Darlene Fick, thank you for thanking me for my coverage of South Dakota politics. I'm sure you're inundated with South Dakota political coverage in all your national podcasts. I'm glad that I could provide a good version of that. A few of you wrote in to say that I said the word convalescing when I meant to say that disparate elements were coalescing around an anti-Trump message, although, you know, Trump has caused some convalescing. Daniel Landsman writes in, and he says, because I've mentioned a couple other podcasts or have even been on some podcasts, and he's now gotten into those podcasts. He says, I'm now a huge fan of FPs, that's Foreign Policies, ER, that's the Executive Roundtable. Anyway, that's a really good foreign policy podcast. Now, twice a week and the meet the press cast which is called 1947 it is also a good podcast he says can you provide a glimpse of the rest of your podcast subscriptions i'll give you a couple good ones 
And the headline is you should be listening to rational security. Maybe it's a little hard to find. It's from the Lawfare blog. Shane Harris of the Wall Street Journal, I think he's with the Daily Beast now, and uh, Tamara Kaufman Wittes and Susan Hennessy, who is on Trumpcast, and Benjamin Wittes. Uh, they're with Brookings, the last three people. Benjamin Wittes wrote a great takedown where he noted that Trump's mercilessness was only mitigated by his incompetence. And actually, one of Wittes's, uh criticisms, it was a, in this piece, in which he complimented the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and noted that Trump's executive orders were a horror show. He did note that he found it curious that the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals didn't even quote the relevant law. That part made it onto Morning Joe, and that Morning Joe part made it into a Trump tweet. So, so you know, what I'm saying is this guy's influencing policy and thought at the highest levels if we could call the resident of the Oval Office that. That name, again, of that podcast is Rational Security. Other podcasts I'm listening to, The Bugle is Back. Hey, did you just hear Andy Zaltzman? So I do listen to that. And there are a couple of podcasts about thinking, because I've been really into how we change people's mind, how we change our own mind. And they're called Rationally Speaking, and You Are Not So Smart. And I think I'm going to get both those podcast hosts onto the gist to talk about cognition and issues of uh, apprehension and changing people's mind. Also, for California stuff, press play with Madeline Brand. Another correction, got to credit Steve Jones. I was talking about Tim Scott of South Carolina, who, who was pro-Betsy DeVos, although she's very anti-union and he's uh, pro-vouchers. And he credited the public schools. And I said, well, if you're crediting the public schools, you're probably crediting a public school teacher. And that teacher's probably in a union. Uh-uh. As Steve Jones writes, South Carolina teachers don't have unions. They kind of do. They say they do. But what they can't do, there are five states like this, they can't collectively bargain. By the way, educational outcomes in the states where teachers can't collectively bargain are among the lowest in the nation. There was a point, I think it was in 2009, where literally the five lowest achieving states were the five states where you couldn't collectively bargain. Now it's a little less clean than that, but I just wanted to point that out. And I did want to correct myself. Is Steve Jones a high school teacher. He's at high school psych. Maybe he works in a high school. Don't know if he's part of a union, but credit to you. And now a couple deep dives, and this brings us to the lobster of the Antan twig. Guy named Oliver, Oliver VP, which is oh, just as good as the MVP. I was talking about the uh, vitamin C hit graduation, called her a one hit wonder. Is it a them? I think it's more of a her. Oh, did he take issue with me? He took me to school, unionized school, because it was a good school. He said vitamin C's other hit, Smile, actually reached a higher position in the Billboard Top 118 in 1999 compared to graduation, which peaked at 38. But what saddens me about your quick dismissal of this more appropriate labeled two-hit wonder was that you made no mention of vitamin C, a.k.a. Colleen Ann Fitzpatrick's first band, Eve's Plum. I remember Eve's Plum. I remember the name. It, it stands out. I had no idea that vitamin C was originally Eve's Plum. It would seem a little bit of a come down from the coolness that the name Eve's Plum implied to become vitamin C. But you know what? All credit to Colleen Ann Fitzpatrick. All credit to vitamin C. And thank you, Oliver. And he adds this postscript. He identifies himself as a guy who once worked in a hair salon owned by a girl who was friends with vitamin C before she was vitamin C. So this guy knows, knows his stuff. Now, the other deep dive actually gets the award for Lopstar of the Antan Twig. And I was talking about Sebastian Gorka, 
who is a self-described PhD and a member of the administration. And I noted that he always he's always calling himself doctor, and it seems to be an award granted by Cornivus University in Budapest, for, formerly the Budapest University of Economic Sciences. So Zach Rouse did a lot of digging. He wanted to find out if the Budapest University of Economic Sciences and Public Administration was legit. So Zach didn't definitively prove that it is or isn't a real university from which an American member of the administration can claim a doctorate. But he does say this. Then he quotes from their webpage. The academic rankings of the university's prestige, professional, and social acceptability are measured regularly. Year by year, the university is among the best institutions of various national and international rankings. A lot of specificity so far, right? It was listed in the top 50 in the Financial Times European Masters in Management Rankings. The fact that there are 51 or 52 European master's degrees in management rankings was news to me, but the official description of this university goes on to say that it was the first Hungarian university mentioned among the best in the area of agriculture. I think this is fine work. And Zach Rouse ends his letter by saying, perhaps insecurity and need to list one's bona fides as a means of demonstrating one's credibility as part of the culture of the former Budapest University of Economic Sciences and Public Administration. Sort of like, you know, talking about football at Notre Dame. Regardless, it's a thing Dr. Sebastian Gorka, PhD, has obviously taken to heart. And so there, I have to say, Zach Rouse, you went down a rabbit hole. You took a bite of the mushroom, it made you bigger. You took a bite of the mushroom, it made you smaller. We're reading Alice in Wonderland. That's actually what happened with the mushrooms. You thought you came up with nothing, but for showing your work, I give you something. I give you this award as a lobstar of the Antan Twig, and I hope you're bursting with pride. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Chris Berube, who could tell drafts apart just from the nature of their silence. Mary Wilson also produces the gist. She could do the same with the sound of panthers, not just any panthers, pink panthers. When they don't make a noise, it's the pink panther. When they say, heavens to Murgatroyd, it's Snagglepuss. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, can tell Beatles apart by sound. Well, mostly who's singing lead and who's doing harmony. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, can tell Gibbons apart just by the cuts of their jib. The gist? We were called in by a famous bioacoustics expert who didn't understand the sound that his birds were making. So I just had to tell him, this is what it sounds like when doves cry. Oomperu depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening. Bye.